This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Donald Trump's candidates in November lost those key races for senator and governor in the swing states. He's facing criminal investigations, criminal indictments, guilty verdicts on many fronts. The party leaders would love for him to disappear, but just when you think we're finished with Donald Trump, he pulls you back in again. He's declared his candidacy for 2024. He's in the headlines almost every day. What does that say about the health of our democracy and about our history over the last 50 or so years? For comment, we turn to Andrew Basevich. His new book is On Shedding an Obsolete Past, Bidding Farewell to the American Century. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Thanks very much for having me. Well, our friends are divided about Trump. Many see him as a transformational figure, paving the way for American fascism. Others view him less as a cause and more of an effect, an effect of longer term trends and developments. You've always been in the second camp and your new book opens by declaring there was no age of Trump. Please explain your basic argument here. Well, I, I think the argument begins with acknowledging that uh, the nation is in the midst of a profound crisis. I think that it manifests itself in a misguided approach to foreign policy, which has us mired in almost continuous wars, and also domestic dysfunction. It's economic in the sense that it, it, it finds expression in, in inequality. It's cultural. Uh, it's racial, it's religious. And although Trump, with a certain perverse genius, I guess, has exploited that crisis to his advantage, I don't see any real evidence to suggest that he created it. Uh, so as you said in your introduction, yeah, he's not the cause, he's the effect. Lots of people see a contrast between America after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, when a new era dawned without global superpowers threatening to destroy each other. People see a contrast between that and America after 9-11 in 2001, which resulted in a new militarization of basic U.S. policy, viewing the world as a place full of threats and dangers. So in this view, 1991 brought an opening up of hope, 9-11 brought a closing down, an era of fear, the global war on terror. But you say there's a longer pattern. There's a unity behind those apparent shifts. You call it the very long war, which you date as 1965 to 2021, beginning with the escalation in Vietnam, ending with the last Americans leaving Afghanistan a 56-year war. Please explain the very long war. Well, I mean, let me confess, that's an artificial construct. I could make the same argument, I think, of a, of a long war beginning in uh, December 1941 uh, okay. or 1945. A militarized approach to policy, which marked a radical change from U.S. policy before that time. We have been an imperialistic nation. We have been an aggressive nation prior to World War II, but we were not permanently committed 
to the proposition of defining our identity uh, in terms of military greatness. The, the essay that you referred to, which begins the argument in 1965, more than anything else is probably a reflection of, of me. Me too. <laughs> a me member, too. <laughs> you know, a, a, a member of the boomer generation. And as a member of the boomer generation, if I say the war, speaking to friends, the war, I'm talking about the Vietnam War. Yeah. My war, our war. Yeah. My mother would have said the war. And she, would, of course, would have been referring to World War II, in which she had participated. So in, in, in ways that probably are difficult to justify, my worldview has a start point, a, a launch pad with the events of the 60s more broadly, not just Vietnam, but that decade. And therefore, the story I tend to tell tends to be a story that begins in the 1960s. And it's a story in which the Vietnam War tends to figure uh, as uh, exceedingly important, formative. Just thought experiment here. What if the United States had not intervened in Vietnam and had not responded to 9-11 by invading Afghanistan? What might have happened? You're making my head spin. <laughs> you may, I'm about to explode. <laughs> Those were both opportunities to take a different path, to take a path diverging from the concept of an American century. That is to say, diverging from the notion that the global order had to be one founded on American primacy. Arguably, potentially, we would have become a different nation. In, in neither occasion did that possibility even receive the slightest serious consideration. I mean, how long did it take George W. Bush to embark upon a global war on terrorism? Defined not simply as, not simply as uh, an enterprise intended to prevent a recurrence of 9-11, but actually designed as a great crusade uh, in which the United States of America would uh, spread freedom in American style democracy uh, throughout much of the of, of the greater Middle East. Preposterous and yet very American. And for the course of this very long war, if we had not intervened in Vietnam and not invaded Afghanistan, how might that have affected the Soviet Union and China? I must admit, as a as an old Cold Warrior, which I was in my youthful days, you and I probably would have been on opposite sides of the barricades. I think so. Uh, but in, in, in retrospect, I've never believed uh, that the United States and the Soviet Union were going to come out of World War II and be friends. I think a competitive relationship, in, in many respects, a hostile relationship, uh, probably was all but an inevitable. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we would have necessarily embarked upon uh, an arms race doesn't necessarily mean we would have engaged in all kinds of you know, shenanigans in the underdeveloped world. Doesn't necessarily mean we'd, we'd have the great face-off of opposing forces uh, in Western Europe. But the might have been would be that, and particularly in the case of the Soviet Union, that the, the inevitable failure of the Soviet system might have actually happened earlier. I, I do believe uh, that Marxism, Leninism, as practiced in the Soviet Union, under, under the shadow of Stalinism, that that was doomed to fail. 
And I suspect that the architecture of the Cold War probably kept it from failing sooner. So that a, again, a more modest policy without the preoccupation with facing off against the Soviets, without the claim that we, that it was a bipolar world, without the claim that this was, you know, freedom besieged, actually might have seen the collapse of communism happen sooner. But let's face it, you and I are engaged in, you know, pretty wild speculation here. One thing is for sure, we wouldn't have had 58,000 Americans killed in Vietnam. Yes. And where exactly does Trump fit into this history? As I recall, he ran in 2016 as a critic of American intervention around the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the America First uh, theme was a rejection of American globalism that dated from the immediate aftermath of World War II. I've always believed that he quite literally uh, didn't know what he was saying. Uh, that that he is a historically ignorant man who was probably handed the phrase in a three by five card by some aide and was told use this in your speech. I'm being a little sarcastic, but but not that not that that much really. As president, his his ignorance, his his lack of a work ethic. He was a lazy man. Yeah. I remember when the stories came out of the examining his schedule for the day and the hours where he basically was unscheduled and it was leaked from the White House that he was sitting in sitting in the Oval Office watching TV by himself. It was called executive time on the president's exactly calendar. Right. Exactly right. So in, in an odd sense, the United States was kind of on autopilot for four years. He did damaging things. He was not completely passive. And you know, and you could also say there were a few things that came out of the administration that were actually good. I don't know. I mean, some people would say that. Some people would say that it was about time uh, that the uh, embassy uh, in Israel moved to Jerusalem, given that that's the capital of the country. But I, I have always believed uh, that, as ill-intentioned as he is, that his impact is quite limited, and that his legacy, I think, is like to be likely to be trivial. Hard to say that or see that today when once again he's potentially a, a serious candidate for the presidency. But I think that 30 years from now, when we have a certain critical distance from the period that we're now living through, and we try to figure out what imparted to that period, its characteristics, I don't think that the shenanigans of Donald Trump is going to figure as a very important cause. You open your new book, with a, a quote from famous quote from George Packer, who wrote on election night in 2020, we are two countries. Of course, he wrote as a liberal, so he meant one was bigoted and ignorant and anti-democratic, and the other was tolerant and enlightened. And then you write, four years of relentless obsessions about Donald Trump culminated in this sort of judgment, which you call too convenient by half. Please explain, you don't think that we are two countries today? Oh, I do. Well, I mean, maybe we're 10 countries in the sense that uh, the divisions are profound. The level of animosity uh, between different camps, but it's too easy to say it's a left-right split. It seems to me for, for a nation to be a nation, 
and for a nation to, to function, to be able to recognize and take on its problems, re requires a certain basic sense of unity, cohesion. And I don't think that exists. Maybe I'm overstating it too, but uh, the divisions are profound. I'm, I must say, I see the Biden administration as kind of a placeholder that this administration either lacks the, the, the wit or the capacity to address those divisions in a meaningful way. I, I certainly think that President Biden is on balance a man of goodwill, but I don't know that he possesses the necessary insight uh, to do what needs to be done. I mean, I pay attention mostly to uh, matters of foreign policy. What we get from him uh, and his administration is this notion that uh, we're engaged in this great cosmic struggle between uh, democracy and authoritarianism. There's the good guys led by us, and there's there's the bad guys, and that's uh, that's China and, and Russia. And I just find that to be too simplistic. I think I understand why they frame it that way, because it's a framing that does recall the, the operative paradigms of the 20th century. Us against the fascists in World War II, us against the communists after World War II. And let me just add, us against the terrorists after And then us against, us against the terrorists. And there, and there is a certain value, I think, in, in framing things that way. But it's, at the end of the day, it's not accurate. I mean, it doesn't describe the world. And in particular, I think, you know, that, that us against them presumes that whatever the conflict is about, the us will, will prevail. And when the us, when we prevail, that once again, American primacy will be restored. And, you know, we're, we're back into the age of the indispensable nation. We're back in the age of, you know, we're number one. I don't think that's helpful in the present moment. Andrew Basevich, you can read him at The Nation and at Tom Dispatch. His new book is On Shedding an Obsolete Past, Bidding Farewell to the American Century. Andrew Basevich, thanks for this book and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 